You know, you cannot be too Jewish. Thank you. I couldn't possibly agree more. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Professor Aaron Welt, discussing the untold story of Jews and organized crime in the early 20th century. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. Two Jewish is paid for by Two Jewish Radio Programs and Podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and Two Jewish. Shalom. Just when you think any one person's vote doesn't matter in a large democracy, I mean, there's so many of us, there's so much noise around elections these days, they are never decided by one vote anyway. There comes a story that commands attention. A high school Spanish teacher in Connecticut named Chris Poulos decided to run for the state general assembly there for an open seat with no incumbent. He was energetic. He knocked on 5,300 doors to ask people to vote for him at a district with fewer than 11,000 total voters. Essentially, Poulos knocked on half the doors in the district and shook many, many hands. On election night last week, the results came in. Poulos had a six-vote lead over his Republican opponent, a guy named Tony Morrison, a retired tech executive. But in a re-canvas of more than 10,000 ballots over the course of the day, that lead dropped to a single vote. And so... The final total was 5,297 votes for Poulos to 5,296 votes for Morrison. Poulos said, having knocked on 5,300 doors, it's clear that people are divided. We need to wipe the slate clean of animosity. We need to move forward together in a civil and productive way to do what's best for our town and our state. Poulos praised town election workers for an absolutely professional handling of ballots. Steve Kalkowski, the Southington Republican Town Committee chairman in Connecticut, said he's never seen an election decided by one vote. There was one hand-count ballot that made the difference. The voter put their pen on Morrison, but made a dot and then circled Poulos, said Kalkowski. Lawyers for both parties oversaw the careful re-canvas of ballots. One vote, one person's vote, to be more specific, was the difference in that election. The closely divided nature of our national electorate has been demonstrated repeatedly in recent years, even decades. That's made politics look like a zero-sum game, and a painful one at many times. But, looked at through the lens of this one election at least, I think we can take a very different lesson about individual empowerment. One vote can make the difference. Each vote matters. That is, every single person counts. What a great reminder of that essential truth. 
one Judaism has always believed in from Abraham's time to ours. Each individual human being matters. Every single person has value. As Pirkei Avot teaches us in the Mishnah, She'en l'cha adam, she'en lo sha'ah. There is no person who does not have their hour. Every one of us matters. That's a lesson worth relearning again and again. For it's true, not just in an election like the one last week, but in every aspect of life. When we believe that someone is below our notice, we miss the central truth that every single person has value. And when we are down or depressed, we may also fail to realize that we too matter and will have our time. We are, each of us, created in the image of God. Whether it's a single, solitary vote in a state election in Connecticut, or being the tenth person in a minion at a synagogue service, or doing our own part to carry on the work of a larger, valuable organization, or just caring for our own families. Each of us matters. Everybody counts. That's something we need to be reminded of again and again, I suspect, as we were with this one vote. To play us in on this fall morning, here's a lovely setting of the prayer passage, Shomer Yisrael, Guardian of Israel. Guard the people of Israel, the people who each testify that you are the one God. This recording is from the Israeli film Hasodot. The Secrets is sung by a past guest of Two Jewish, Neshama Karlbach.
That was Shlomo Karlbach, Shomer Yisrael, sung by Neshama Karlbach. Our guest this morning, Professor Aaron Welt, explores the relationship between the Jewish economy in the days of massive immigration in the early 20th century and its close relationship to organized crime. It's a fascinating story. Learn all about it when we come back in a moment here on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome to Jewish our guest this morning, Professor Aaron Welt, is a historian of American Jewish history who focuses on themes of immigration and labor. He is uh, currently at Hunter College in New York. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Thank you, Rabbi. It's a pleasure to be here. So we tend to think about uh, Jews, particularly Jewish immigrants in the early part of the well, late, latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century is incredibly hardworking, and we came here poor, and we bootstrapped ourselves up to becoming successful, lived the American dream in the Golden of Medina. Um, that's not the whole story, is it? Um, <laughs> well, it was a story for many people, but um, even if that is your story, you probably came across organized crime at some point in journey into the middle class. And that's kind of the larger point of my research is that organized crime is kind of an ubiquitous part of the, what historians often call the Jewish ethnic economy, this commercial system of uh, businesses owned by Jewish immigrants that were selling to Jewish customers as well as other people and hiring recently arrived Jewish immigrants to work in their businesses. Um, and so as this commercial system developed, particularly within the garment industry in New York and other major cities, organized crime became sort of a pillar of its operations, the way uh, it, um, particularly how labor and employers uh, interact with each other, Organized crime was a very important um, player in how that system unfolded in the years you mentioned, roughly, uh, you know, the 1890s into 1920, and then certainly 1930s and 40s, the story grows to, into a different story, really. Now, um, when we talk about organized crime in America, everybody automatically, automatically, I think, thinks of uh, Sicilians and Italians and the Cosa Nostra and the Mafia, but there was Jewish organized crime. That's correct. Um, it operated very differently than the Italian Mafia in the early 20th century. Um, but one thing that I want to, uh, my research indicates, and I think it's important particularly for people who are interested in the history of organized crime in America, is that the Jewish-Italian um, link in organized crime predates prohibition. It's often thought that the bootlegging operations brought Jews and Italians together, Meyer Fansky and Lucky Luciano, and to a degree that's true. 
But in the early before prohibition um, and uh, bootlegging, organized crime had a lot of links with the strike-breaking industry. Uh, Basically, companies you could hire to break strikes of workers. Nationally, the most famous firms were companies like the Pinkerton, Baldwin Health Agency. Um, But in New York, the strike-breaking industry tended to be small-scale local entrepreneurs. Many were Jewish, figures like Max Schlansky, uh, who is a really important figure in my story, the Berghoff brothers, who had a kind of interesting Jewish identity, um, and others as well. And they linked up with the mafia. They got their personnel to break streets in various ways from local Italian organized crime officials in Little Italy, figures like uh, Jack Zarocco, Paolo Antonio Vaccarelli, um, and this is before bootlegging. So that's a one thing I've uh, come across in my research. We will talk much more with Aaron Weld about the development of, I guess, organized crime and its intricate involvement with Jewish businesses and Jewish industries in New York uh, in the early part of the 20th century, latter part of the 19th century. We come back in a moment here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina foothills, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this fall and winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education, academy courses of all kinds, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services in Onig Shabbat or Kiddush, or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org for more information. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary. 520-276-5675 is the phone number. Religious school is going for school-aged children and grandchildren. Fabulous Hebrew School, Bar and Bat Mitzvah Program, Torah Tykes Experience, Confirmation and Teen Programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Friday night and Saturday morning. Friday night is at 6.30 p.m. each week with Shabbat evening celebration services in Oneg Shabbat. Saturday Shabbat morning services are at 10 a.m. Preceded by Torah study at 9 a.m. All with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson. If you can't come in person, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson. Our musical services are in person and by virtual experience. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and available on Zoom. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to find out more. And our religious school is also available in blended format. Some students live and some on Zoom. For more information about Congregation Beit Simcha, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, 
to come to services, our great religious school and Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, and high school programs, and rich array of adult education academy courses live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on Facebook. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 276-5675. BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, the fastest growing and most vibrant Jewish congregation in all of Southern Arizona in its exciting beginning years. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, kvetch or ikfel, please email us at toojewishradio18 at gmail.com, toojewishradio18 at gmail.com, or come to our website, toojewishradio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, toojewishradio.com, streaming us from there, or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store as wildly popular podcasts, Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 175,000 downloads on Podbean. Also available on Spotify. Post a rating, review to Jewish, give us five stars or six or seven, who cares? Wherever you listen to our podcast, all of those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. So a few weeks ago, we started our uh, last set of conversations about Jewish identity and nationality by um, an issue that came up in a class I was teaching about the fact that all almost all of the really modern Jewish movements began in a small area of what today is Germany within about 20 or 30 years in the 19th century. And that followed emancipation or in the early, earliest part of the 1800s when Reform Judaism was the first diversion from traditional Judaism. Not that there haven't always been some divisions, Ashkenazim, Sephardim, Hasidim, Sabbateans. Sorry? 
Sabbateans. Sa- well, there have also been some sectarians like the Sabbateans, the Frankists. There have been some weird movements along the way. But nothing that you could say, um, the ones that stayed within the body of Judaism, nothing you could say where you weren't really essentially orthodox, right? And followed halacha. So the first, the first variation from that is Reform Judaism beginning of the 19th century. It's followed 10 or 20 years later by the development of modern orthodoxy um, under the leadership of Samson Raphael Hirsch. And that's followed by the development of conservative Judaism, which is called positive historical Judaism with people like Zacharias Frankel in the 19th century. All of it in a group of Jews who had been in that part of Germany for perhaps a thousand years at that point. They'd come in the Middle Ages. Um, I find it so interesting that emancipation, which gave Jews the opportunity to see what everybody else was doing, to change their clothing to look like everybody else, to assimilate, led to this sort of dynamic development in Judaism, but that it particularly happened there. And the other movement developments didn't take place in the same way in places like France or England or uh, the United States initially. There weren't that many Jews here then, perhaps. It's a very interesting, I think, historical geographical development. So that's my take on it. Yours might be somewhat different. No, I mean, I would just say that the... You know, the notion that there were Jews in what is now Germany for a thousand years has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that there was no such thing as Germany. And there were all these different entities, chief among which was the Holy Roman Empire. And we forget that that kind of straddles the border between modern France and modern Germany, and that various chunks of France and Germany, and several other countries, the Low Countries, for example, parts of Switzerland, whatever, were at various points in history part of the ever-changing amorphous blob called the Holy Roman Empire, which, you know, as the old line goes, was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. But it was, in theory, the heir to the Roman Empire, and the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was appointed by the Pope. So in that sense, it was holy and Roman, although what happened to it when the popes were in Avignon is a whole nother story, which I don't want to complicate anybody's it's life. It's already with. too complicated. Right. So um, the area where all of this sort of intellectual ferment took place and really dramatic developments, I mean, uh, people think about modern orthodoxy um, as everybody who's not Hasidic, that's not correct. But it certainly is the predominant movement, even if it doesn't get nearly as much press in America and in Israel in terms of the numbers of people that are Orthodox, the vast majority today still are modern Orthodox, not Hasidic, not ultra-Orthodox. That that changed the idea that you could be part of society and maintain your Judaism, whether you were Orthodox or Reform or somewhere in between and conservative, that's a that's a really interesting development that required that Jews both have the freedom and flexibility to participate in society and the sense that there was something they needed to preserve against outside pressures. Okay, just before we leave this subject, I think one word that maybe needs clarification is the sense in which you're using emancipation. It's not the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln no. freeing the slaves. No, it's totally different from that. And so, p- 
people unfamiliar with European Jewish history may not know that for many, many centuries, Jews were required to live in walled-in areas and locked in at night. And these were the, these were the ghettos. And Jews had to wear distinctive clothing. And they were restricted in terms of what their professional activities could be. There was a very narrow range of things they could do. They often couldn't own land and various other things. So people saw Jews in a certain way because the local laws, which were ultimately handed down by papal bulls um, and interpreted by local authorities, restricted what Jews could and couldn't do. So when those restrictions were removed... That's what we mean by emancipation in this particular conversation. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. And once those were removed, the Jews could participate in society. It didn't mean there wasn't anti-Semitism. doesn't mean there weren't social restrictions and other things. But it really changed our perspective on what we could do in society. Right. And, and then as Jews. Tom, thanks very much. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by... Too Jewish as a public service. Yankel and Moshe, young yeshiva bochers from a shtetl, are set up by a matchmaker in arranged marriages with girls from a far-off town. Together they ride a train across Poland, thinking about the brides they're about to meet for the first time. Suddenly, Yankel stands up and says, I'm not ready for marriage. I'm not getting married. He grabs his suitcase and jumps off the train at the next stop. Moisha helplessly watches him go. A day later, the train reaches his destination. Moisha gets off, and there are two mothers of the two prospective brides standing there. They are shocked to discover there's just one groom on the train. He's mine, says the first mother. Not on your life. He'll marry my daughter, says the second mother. Moshe lets his prospective mothers-in-law argue about him for a while. Then he says, well, why don't we go to the Rebbe for a ruling? The local rabbi hears the story and decrees. The solution is plain, according to the wisdom and the Tanakh of the great and wise King Solomon in the Bible. Cut the boy in two. Each of you take half. The first mother looks shocked. No, no, she says, don't do such a terrible thing. She can have him. But the second mother says, yes, cut him in half. And the Rebbe points to the second mother and says, that's the real mother-in-law. That was the old Jewish joke of the week, special feature of two Jewish, just for you, you should live and be well. No reflection on my mother-in-law. And now a word of Torah. This week in the portion of Toldot, we read the story of the sons of Rebekah and Isaac and learn of the cleverness of Jacob and the foolishness of Esau. It's a famous story of brotherly rivalry that sets in motion this central tale here in Genesis. It's a story of twins who are anything but fraternal in their interactions. Jacob is a lover of tents, a homebody whose mother loves him. Esau, on the other hand, is a hunter, an outdoorsman, an active man in the extreme, and more or less devoid of deep thought. In our weekly portion, Jacob fools his own family twice. First, he cons the hungry Esau into selling his birthright, his inheritance, 
for a bowl of red lentil porridge. Then at the instigation of his mother Rebecca, Jacob fools his father Isaac into giving him the principal blessing, the spiritual heritage of the leadership of the people someday to be known as Israel. Why is it that Jacob is the one who will become the true father of our people? Yes, he is clever and verbal, cerebral, but he lacks basic moral qualities we should find critical. But Esau, too, is no bargain. All physical exertion and emotional outburst. Instinctive but unreflective. All id to Jacob's superego. They are so different, but both so flawed. In fact, it's only through both of them that the great story of God's oneness can be carried forward for all of their flaws, God finds a way to work for the future and for destiny. It must ultimately be a combination of the contributions of these two very different boys who become quite different men. It's through them, eventually Jacob, but only with Esau's influence that destiny can be achieved. The message is complicated but useful. The truth is, we are all, both Jacob and Esau, partly thoughtful, partly instinctive. We, each of us, are also twins in this sense. We can act with deliberation and care, or forcefully and without judgment. And we all have the capacity to be either ethical or unethical. In those dichotomies lie our innate humanity. And in the persons of Esau and Jacob, we can see ourselves and learn that it's only through God's providence that we will truly find our own promised land. When we come back on to Jewish, our guest this morning, Professor Aaron Welt, explains how you can find elements of Jewish organized crime on both sides of the great labor disputes of the early 20th century and just why Jews didn't continue to dominate organized crime in New York or elsewhere later in the 20th century. Find out all about it when we return in a moment here on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Jewish comedian Larry David is being sued in a class action lawsuit for his role in promoting the failed cryptocurrency exchange platform FTX as a brand ambassador during a famed Super Bowl commercial. I call it the wheel. Hmm. I don't think so. What does it do? It rules. Yeah, so does a bagel, okay? A bagel you can eat. One of the worst ideas I've ever heard. The commercial, which aired during the 2022 Super Bowl back in February and was one of the funniest of all those commercials this year, showed David in various historical moments resisting technological and political innovations, including the advent of the fork and the light bulb, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the creation of the Walkman, all leading up to him ultimately deciding to decline an offer to get involved in FDX's crypto exchange. 
Like I was saying, the FTX man selling to David says, it's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. The image freezes and text appears on the screen. Don't be like Larry. Don't miss out on the next big thing. Well, anyone who bought into FTX then or at any other time is likely wishing they had listened to Larry David's character. Last week, the company filed for bankruptcy. CEO and founder Sam Bankman-Fried resigned from his position amid a run on withdrawals by investors spooked by concerns raised by others in the crypto industry. Federal regulators are reportedly investigating FTX and Bankman-Fried. The lawsuit was filed by an Oklahoma resident, Ed Garrison, who says he is seeking to recover damages and relief stemming from trading with FTX on his own behalf and on behalf of all others similarly situated. Larry David is among 13 celebrity defendants listed in the lawsuit who are among the crypto exchange's star-studded brand ambassadors, including professional basketball, football, and tennis players like Shaquille O'Neal, Tom Brady, David Ortiz, Naomi Osaka, and Giselle Bunchen, as well as Bankman Freed. They're all named in the lawsuit. The downfall of FTX has ignited sweeping disdain for Bankman Freed, from run-of-the-mill to high-profile anti-Semites. I, of course, one of the high-powered lawyers filing the suit is Adam Moskowitz, who is also Jewish. Robert Clary, the French actor, singer, and Holocaust survivor who portrayed Corporal Lebeau on the World War II set sitcom Hogan's Heroes, has died. He was 96. Clary, who was mentored by famed entertainer Eddie Cantor and actually married one of Eddie Cantor's five daughters, died last week in Los Angeles at his home. CBS's Hogan's Heroes aired over six seasons from September 1965 to April 1971. It starred Bob Crane as Colonel Robert Hogan, an American who led an international group of allied prisoners of war in a covert set of operations to defeat the Nazis from inside the Stalag 13 camp. As the patriotic French corporal Louis Lebeau, the five-foot-one Clary, hid in small spaces, dreamed about girls, got along great with the guard dogs, and used his expert culinary skills to help the befuddled Nazi Colonel Wilhelm Klink, Werner Klemperer, get out of trouble with his superiors. By the way, Werner Klemperer, who played Colonel Klink, was also Jewish, son of the famed classical music conductor Otto Klemperer, and father of a guy I played softball with in junior high school in West L.A., Robert Clary was the last surviving member of Hogan's Heroes' original principal cast. Born Robert Max Weiderman in Paris on March 1, 1926, Clary was the youngest of 14 children in a strictly Orthodox Jewish family. At age 12, he began singing and performing when he was 16. He and his family were rounded up and sent to Auschwitz by the Nazis. My mother said the most remarkable thing, Clary said. She said, behave. She knew me as a brat. She said, behave, do what they tell you to do. Clary's parents were murdered in the gas chamber the day they arrived at Auschwitz. At Buchenwald, Clary sang with an accordionist every other Sunday to an audience of SS soldiers. Singing, entertaining, and being in kind of good health at my age 
That's why I survived, he said. Alouette, gentil alouette. Alouette, je te plumerai. Je te plumerai la tête. Je te plumerai la tête. Je te plumerai les yeux. Je te plumerai les yeux. Robert Clary was incarcerated for 31 months in Auschwitz. He worked in a factory making 4,000 wooden shoe heels every day. He had the tattoo on his left forearm. He was the only one of his large, captured family to make it out alive. Robert Clary did not talk about his Holocaust experience for almost 40 years. For 36 years, I kept these experiences during the war locked up inside me. But those who are attempting to deny the Holocaust, my suffering and the suffering of millions of others forced me to speak out. Clary said, I had to explain that Hogan's Heroes was about prisoners of war in a stalag, not a concentration camp, and although I did not want to diminish what soldiers went through during their internments, it was like night and day from what people endured in concentration camps, he wrote in his autobiography, From the Holocaust to Hogan's Heroes. After being liberated, Clary returned to France in May of 1945 and sang in dance halls. He came to L.A. in 1949 to record for Capitol Records. A year later, was in a French comedy skit on a CBS variety show hosted by Ed Wynn. Clary appeared in a variety of films, Ten Tall Men, The Thief of Damascus, and then he met Eddie Cantor, who took him to New York to perform at the Tony La Vie en Rose Club. He came to the attention of a producer who cast him in the Broadway musical review New Faces of 1952. Broadway led to films, which led eventually to TV and Hogan's Heroes, and of course he married Eddie Cantor's daughter. Clary worked closely with the Simon Wiesenthal Center for years, speaking and teaching about the Holocaust to a wide variety of groups of all ages on many college campuses for 20 years. May he rest in peace. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. 
We welcome back to Two Jewish our guest this morning. Aaron Welt is a historian of American Jewish history. Uh, he's on the faculty at Hunter College in New York. He is writing a book on the role of organized crime in the American Jewish labor movement, the business community in the, I guess, latter part of the 19th century, but primarily the early 20th century. Aaron, uh, you mentioned that um, there were there were Jewish strike-breaking companies, but of course, Jews are famous for being heavily involved in labor organizing. Um, that put Jews on kind of both sides of that labor-business divide, didn't it? Yes. Um, so that's really kind of like the key part of the story. <laughs> are the frequent strikes that would break out in this Jewish ethnic economy? And I think maybe looking backwards, the idea is that what we call racketeering today, you know, using violence, extortion, and threats in business matters was something created by unions. But actually, in my research, I find that unions started hiring gangsters after they were dealing with the gangsters they found being employed by uh, big factories in the Lower East Side. Um, an important moment is in 1909, the shirtwaist makers of New York go out on strike, largely women, uh, incredible activists and inspiring people like uh, this strike was led by someone named Clara Lemp. In September of 1909, she's ambushed by two gangsters who are hired by the factory that she works for. Okay? And it's not until 1911 when you start to see the International Ladies Garment Workers Union ally with someone named Dopey Benny Fine, who was at that point becoming one of the most prominent Jewish gangsters in New York. And so this story of racketeering, I think it needs some reconceptualization. You know, and if you look at the grand jury notes from when Dopey Benny Fine is officially brought to court, he makes it pretty clear that he was hired to protect striking workers who were being attacked by these gangsters that their employers were hiring during strikes. And then it just snowballs. You know, they become kind of uh, fixtures of union politics because unfortunately, um, in, you know, and this is not about specific to American history, but American history, um, it, it was a very, there was a lot of violence in industry during this period. This is a period of, the railroad strike of 1877, the Homestead strike, uh, 1905, there's a very bloody strike of Teamsters in Chicago, 1914, uh, uh, the Ludlow strike. We could go on. This racketeering story is kind of the Jewish version of that part of American history. Oh, it's a, it's a great point. Um, you know, uh, I was thinking that my mother of blessed memory used to think that all kosher butchers were involved in organized crime just because of the price of meat. Um, <laughs> that's not what you're talking about here, however. <laughs> well, it's it related because um, organized crime being involved in these industries, it raised the price of these products. You know, not only did they try and make sure the workers would pay were paid well if they worked for unions, but they got a cut too. And ultimately, you know, consumers had to pay for that, I don't know, like underworld tax, you might call it or something like that. 
so that might be what your your mother was referring to. Yeah, no, that was my mom actually. You don't have to go back that far. Um, you know, it, it's one thing for the for the butcher to have his thumb on the scale. It's another for a lot of other people to have their thumb on the scale, metaphorically along the way. Um, the the role of organized crime in these developing industries began to transform in the 20s. Now, was that because of prohibition or it just kind of happened along the way? Yeah, that's a great question. The 1920s is a really important turning point. One is that prohibition lowers all these gangsters into bootlegging, as well as things like drug dealing and other underworld activities. Um, but the big a number of other developments happen. One is that immigration from Europe begins to be cut off. And so the necessity of placing tens of thousands of Jewish immigrants in different industries around New York, it, that, that concern is dissipating with, um, you know, immigration restriction, particularly after 1921 and 1924. And then the other big development is the Bolshevik Revolution which splits the labor movement in America between communists and then more moderate socialists. And actually what you see over the 1920s is organized crime becoming involved in the conflict between those groups. Um, the more moderate unionists, people like Morris Sigmund, uh, David Dubinsky, although he never, I want to be clear, Dubinsky doesn't seem to have directly hired gangsters. Morris Sigmund... I certainly did. <laughs> um, and they're, they're battling with these communists who are also, in many instances, willing to per, you know, get, uh, uh, connect with the underworld. And very interestingly, this so-called civil war within the ILGWU, it only comes to a conclusion when Arnold Rothstein kind of sits down with this really important gangster of the 1920s. Yeah, Arnold Rothstein most famous for throwing the 1919 World Series, right? The Black right. Sox World Series. I mean, he was a gambler par excellence, but a very important, I don't know, uh, what do you call it when someone's a godfather of Jewish organized crime? That's interesting. I mean, also very involved in union affairs, uh, importantly, and in business affairs in the garment industry um, uh, and other industries. And, uh, one just important thing, I guess, on that point is there were no sort of Jewish godfathers because a lot of these Jewish gangsters didn't want their children involved in the way that they kind of made it in America. So that's kind of a big difference, too. I, I mean, I think of um, Jews involved in bootlegging like the Bronfman family. I mean, that's what it means, right? Whiskey, they uh, obviously moved out of bootlegging into some um, more reputable forms of business along the way. Um, the the Jewish mobsters, and I don't know how far out you followed the story, but the people that whose names, um, you know, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel and those guys— um, they're a different kind of gangster, aren't they? Yeah, they actually move out of the world of union affairs. Um, and so that is another thing that I think changes with immigration restriction and prohibition is that, well, actually, you, you know, being a gangster allied with a union still be lucrative. And then Lefty Bufalter kind of revives it um, in the 1930s and scale that would be unprecedented um, in how many uh, union members were, you know, paying him graft. Um, but over the 1920s, 
Siegel, Meyer Lansky, a whole host of more Americanized gangsters are moving into gambling, bootlegging for sure. Um, so it's kind of like a different story. And I, I think the real big difference is that you don't have all these immigrants coming from Europe. The unions are trying to, you know, to make them work for a certain wage. The employers are trying to get them to work for any wage um, that, you know, they can. That conflict sort of dissipates um, by the 1920s. And so Siegel, um, Lansky, some of these other gangsters, they represent kind of a, a, a different generation, so to speak, than Doki Benny Fine. A last question. Um, It's a fascinating subject. I'm sure it'll be a great book when you get it done. Um, How did the organized, well, how did, for example, uh, speaking as a rabbi, what was the official Jewish position on all of this? What were the rabbis saying about it? Were they talking about it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, We know that rabbis would um, decry uh, Jewish involvement in crime particularly around big scandals, okay? So in 1908, the police commissioner of New York City writes this very inflammatory and false article that says half of the criminals in New York are either Italian or Jewish, and this causes panic in the Jewish community of New York City, and so they organize this group called the Kahila, you know, similar to the American Jewish Committee or uh, the Anti-Defamation League, perhaps, they're going to represent Jewish interests in New York City politics. And it's led by this famous rabbi, uh, Judah Magnus, who goes on to do many other things. Many things, including Hebrew University and a lot of other things. Very story. One of, you know, big figure in 20th century Jewish history. He leads Katilla to refute police commissioner Bingham's uh, accusations. And then later on in 1912, there's another flare-up. So you see the rabbis pretty much take a definitive stance against Jewish involvement in organized crime. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a really good article by a story named um about how the Yiddish press rabbis, they interpreted Jews becoming involved in crime as them Americanizing. And so this was like a bad part of Amer- uh, Jews Americanizing, is that they also became gangsters and gamblers and stuff like that. So I think that was kind of the interpretation of uh, how they viewed crime. And many believe, you know, if there's a good Hebrew school system, Jewish education, well, then they'll um, not become gangsters. Uh, that didn't always happen, unfortunately. Um, Aaron, I want to thank you for a great visit here on Two Jewish. I, I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface of this. Um, where can people go to find out more about you? Um, well, you can visit my faculty page on the uh, Jewish Studies program at Hunter College. Um, and I encourage everyone to learn more about our program. We have uh, lunch lectures that are sometimes online. Um, so I want to plug uh, my department as well. Absolutely. Aaron, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rabbi. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical playout. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, 
you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Rabbi Matt Gewurz, author of the new memoir to build a brave space, a rabbi on a motorcycle. And don't forget, join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night. Services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and available on our Facebook page. Our play out this morning comes from the wonderful Broadway musical The Band's Visit, based on an outstanding Israeli film. In the spirit of our slow-moving election results in America, it's called Waiting. My friends, have a Shavua Tov, a healthy week of Thanksgiving to come, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. Waiting, what's new here? You're waiting, I'm waiting, cause that's what we do here. Same as we do every day for something I don't know to happen. You know, just something different to happen. Just waiting for something to change, just a change. Sometimes it feels like we're moving in a circle Around and around with the same scenery Going by but no one's complaining We're experts at waiting Sponsored by Two Jewish Radio Programs, Tucson, Arizona.